This summer, we're putting more party in the park at Busch Gardens Summer Nights. Feel the rush of coasters in the dark. Feel the beat of multiple DJs spinning in three different parties. And enjoy exclusive culinary offerings. The party goes all day and into the night at Busch Gardens. Come all summer long with an annual pass, starting at just $14 per month with EasyPay. Busch Gardens Summer Nights. Party louder, play later. Parking taxes and service fees not included. Restrictions apply. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hello, my name is Robert Salas. I'm the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, my name is Bob Luca. And my name is Betty Andreessen Luca. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien. And mysteries, conspiracies, and cover-ups. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Positive Autistic. I'm Jeremiah Bomex, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com.
of a dying star. That's hot. From the snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Graveyard You heard me right. We have news about the bronies. Yeah, yes, I said bronies. We have news about the UFOs. We've got the news about the Curiosity Rover, Sasquatch family going on a picnic. I mean, you know, naked people in Japan. I, I don't know what to say anymore. There's too much stuff to talk about. We're just going to go on. But before we go any further tonight, I have a very special guest on the air with us live. We usually don't do this, but I felt this was a special occasion. And before I bring him on, I want you all to know, well, actually, most of you already know how much of a fan I am of the BattleBots TV show. I mean, it was an absolutely huge TV show back in its day. It was on Comedy Central, and it was about these little robots that would fight each other. In fact, um, two of the inventors that would bring the robots would be, you know, uh, Jamie and, and Adam of the Mythbusters. So at any rate, and without any further ado... I'm going to go ahead and bring him on the air. This is Mark Barrow, the announcer of the BattleBots TV show. How are you doing, Mark? All right, Amy. Good to be with you. Awesome. Glad to have you on the air with us. So I got to tell you that I'm geeking out because I get in my news feed the other day that ABC has decided to renew the BattleBots TV series. Is this correct? Yes. uh, And I found out about it yesterday. Uh, they're talking about doing a very short, uh, my understanding is uh, right now, a six-program summer series this summer. Wow, that is awesome. And I mean, I'm assuming you're going to have a part in that, correct? Well, uh, I'm certainly in the running for it. I was contacted today. I made contact with the uh, BattleBots people, uh, in particular Greg Munson, who is one of the uh, the people who uh, who is a part of BattleBots Incorporated, and uh, we had a brief discussion uh, in which uh, I let them know that I was uh, interested in uh, uh, being a part of that project, and they uh, the, the word was from his point of view. They felt that uh, I was part of the family, and they very much desired me to be the uh, the uh, BattleBots announcer for the event. There there are other uh, factors involved, and uh, it's not clear who will make the decision on talent. Although ABC TV, uh, in association with their core of announcers. Uh, with ESPN uh, certainly have a say in the matter, 
But uh, with regards to the actual BattleBots ring announcing, uh, that that uh, I'm told by BattleBots people that I'm I'm in the lead for that position. There are no guarantees as of yet, and uh, they're still in the formulative stages. Okay, right, and that's what I was under the understanding. They were still just kind of planning things out, but the fact that they even spoke to you is a big deal. And and I mean the fact that they mentioned that you were part of the family, I would I would give that a very positive uh, positive news there. That's that's pretty big news. Yeah, well, I'm I'm certainly encouraged by it, and, uh, you know, I certainly didn't do anything that would uh, dissuade the BattleBots people from using uh, me. You know, they, they their desire is to, uh, the first thing they wanted to know was I healthy enough to do it, which I am, and uh, that they were very happy with all that. So, um, you know, I, I was very encouraged. In fact, uh uh, you and I had a chance meeting today, and I had not yet spoken to this individual uh, until I got home. This afternoon when I saw you, I still had not spoken to the BattleBots family. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they finally, uh, we made contact today, and all of this discussion I just relayed to you is uh, what just happened. Uh, I'd I, I venture to say... Uh, less than six hours ago. So, wow, this is really the first time that anyone would really have heard of this particular part of the news on this That's show correct. tonight. You That's pretty everybody. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I tell you, I, I'm really excited for you. I, I hope it comes I hope it comes to, to pass. I can't think of a better person. I mean, it, honestly, and I, I really know, I know my audience enough to tell you that it won't be BattleBots without you being there to announce it. Anybody that knows BattleBots, any of my listeners out there, by listening to this gentleman that I'm talking to, will recognize his voice and recognize the voice of the announcer of the ring when the robots were fighting. Now, to be clear, Mark, you're the one that came out, because some of my listeners, are they might still be trying to put the puzzle pieces together. And it's hard, you know, when you're hearing a voice and not actually seeing the face. So I'm going to help right. them a little bit. So just to be clear, you you would be the one that before the, the the robots would actually fight, you would be in the ring, and then you would be doing what, like announcing the robots coming and, and going? That's correct. I would be the guy that essentially, just like in a boxing ring, where a ring announcer would introduce the principals in the ring, I was the person that introduced the robots and their team of managers uh, in each of the corners, so to speak, and uh, right before each contest. Okay, cool. And and as I said, I mean, th- this was a really big show in its day, and it was very popular. I was surprised when they pulled the plug. I was devastated. <laughs> I well, was absolutely uh, devastated. Well, let's be very clear. It, it wasn't just a very popular program. In fact, it was the number one cable show in all of cable TV in its first two years of running. Oh my, I did not know that. It it slipped in the third year to the third most watched cable program, so it was still very popular when Comedy Central decided that after four years of uh, producing the shows, they wanted to move on to something else. Hmm. 
Well, I would say that would that was an unfortunate decision, but uh, fortunate for ABC because now they're bringing in the show again, and you know I think it's going to be very lucrative for them and uh, for really for anybody involved, really. And I I, I certainly hope that they can get Jamie and um, I hope I'm saying their names right, Jamie and Adam from MythBusters involved in the in at least one of the few new episodes. So at least that, you know, someone from the old days can, you know, including yourself, obviously, can come and, and kind of usher in the show once again. So that, that well, would be kind of cool. The, the, the good thing about uh, uh, embarking on this kind of uh, venture is that they have a whole library of, uh, of a show material that they can refer to. Uh, I, I know when you open the program, you briefly describe the contest as uh, you know, these uh, little robots that that used to combat each other. But uh, let me remind you that the little, and I put that in quotes, uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of these robots weighed as much as 350 pounds. <laughs> right, right, right. So you know, they they ranged from like 50 or 60 pounds. I, I would say on the average. They they weighed closer to about a hundred to one hundred and fifty pounds these these robots and they uh, they they were they were quite <laughs> uh, let, let me put it to you this way when I was first introduced to the sport I, I had no idea what in the hell people were talking about when they <laughs> were pitching the show idea to me and when I got there and I saw the ingenuity that was involved in the the the, the the whole range of people to uh, very young uh, kids, uh, 12-year-old kids, all the way up to 40-year-old and plus uh, individuals, all embarking on this venture to to have the best robot in town and the winner. And it it was quite exciting. I mean, uh, the first year that they did... Uh, uh, a telecast. It wasn't on Comedy Central. Uh, they they were doing a bunch of independent uh, productions at the time, and there were about 90 robots that were involved in competition. And by the time, in four years later, they they had well over 400 robots entering the competition. Oh my God! And and I as mean, a matter I, of fact, yeah. a, a lot of a lot of people don't know that it took three days, eight hours each day to do the entire tournament. So it was like twenty four hours of competition in three days to come down to the finalists. Wow! I did not know that. You know, when you watch the show, you don't the, the, these kinds of little details slip by and you don't realize how much work is really involved in all well, that. I, now, go, no, ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I, I was going to tell you that when, when, when I got there, I would, I would fly in to whatever location. And usually the locations for the TV taping were either in San Francisco or in Las Vegas. Uh, I think we had, uh, we worked, uh, two times in Vegas and two times in uh, San Francisco. And what what we would do or what I'd have to do is I'd fly into town 
a day before production, and then the following day, we would have a morning uh, morning session that would run from 10 o'clock until 1 o'clock, and then we'd take a break for an hour, and then we would go again from 2 o'clock to almost 6 o'clock. Wow. And we, and we would do that for three days. And after all those 24 hours of taping uh, through an elimination bracketed tournament, uh, all that material would then be taken to California, somewhere in the production studios in L.A., and they would, they would create 13 one-hour programs from all that material. Hmm. And that became the show. Wow, look at that. Well, there you go, guys. That's how they did it. I know a lot of you have been asking me how they did all that, and there you have it. Straight from the yeah, horse's I, mouth. And by the time I finished, and, you know, I, in addition to doing BattleBots, uh, everybody knows me as a, a ring announcer for boxing and wrestling and, and, and other sports. Uh, by the time I finished that schedule, I was completely hoarse. I bet. And if you look at the uh, broadcast, you'll see uh, the change in my voice. And um, uh, they used to call me Iron Throat. And <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I, I didn't feel like an iron, iron Throat, but it was very, very exciting. There isn't a low spot in the competition. And by the way, at the time they canceled the program, they were talking about traveling around the United States and holding regional tournaments. Really? And one of the places they talked about was Tampa, Florida. I'll be damned. Look at that. Well, maybe yeah, now I, they'll do that. Maybe, that, yeah, maybe well, now. Depending that. on how successful, you know, if they can create another niche. And there's no reason to believe that they won't because here you and I are talking about something that happened almost 10 years ago. Exactly. That's that that you you just said it exactly. You know something is popular if if there is a a fan a fan base for it and there is a cult following and a group following and a huge following this far along. And I mean that that right there shows the the uh the power of it. Really. Well, I I have always said that for, for myself I've been involved in a lot of endeavors, as you know. Right. And uh, uh, one of the lasting things that, that, that is just, I mean, let's face it, there are only so many people that like wrestling. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a segment that likes boxing. There's a segment that may like baseball. Uh, there, there are different segments of, of individuals and their interests. But I never saw anything that was so collective and so massively popular as BattleBots. I, I know that although I'm somewhat of a celebrity in all of those other sports, I'm well recognized. And, and uh, I mean, <laughs> it was about uh, six years ago, I was elected to the Boxing Hall of Fame in Florida. So, you know, I have people that know me from a lot of things as a talk show host like you and everything, but nothing ever 
uh, transcended uh, the work that I did in BattleBots. I mean, uh, everybody, I mean, I would walk through airports, and I was so stunned on so many occasions where people, I'd hear somebody yell out, hey, that's the robot guy. (laughs) <laughs> and I'd have all kinds of people run up to me while I was changing airplanes, asking for autographs and pictures. And uh, it, it was quite a thing. You know, I told my wife uh, during that entire experience, I said, wow, man, uh, I'm not quite the Beatles or anybody famous uh, along those lines. But I certainly can understand what the uh, the price or the uh, the level of fame that that these people achieve when you become a real celebrity, uh, I, I just got a very small taste of that in the short time I was doing BattleBots. Oh yeah, it's a- absolutely. I, and if you can, I mean, you can imagine what <laughs> the Beatles they they wouldn't have a a breath of fresh air at all. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, you know, you know any any celebrity, any no, celebrity in any endeavor. I mean, uh, uh, you know, whether you're an astronaut or whatever. Right. You you as you achieve a certain amount. Like I said, of course I'm not on that stratospheric no, uh, but... level, but boy, I'll tell you, I got a taste of it because <laughs> there there was a good two year period there where I couldn't go anywhere where people would actually see me. I'm not even talking about people that would overhear my conversation with someone and say, "Excuse me, are you the guy that does you know." Battle bots and I and I'd start laughing. <laughs> well, we uh, certainly uh, hope yeah. that this works out for you. I mean, I I really hope it does. And of course, please please do keep us, you know, in in your uh, thoughts when you when you do get it, and you know, let us know, and that way we can get you on the air again, and and you know, make the announcement, and you know, that way everybody knows when to when to tune in and all that stuff. And uh, now I know you mentioned before, before we let you go tonight. Um, but I know you mentioned about uh, doing a talk show. Would you like to tell us what station and what time? That way everybody knows when to tune in. Well, uh, I just, you know, I had done a talk show for close to uh, uh, 15 years on a local station here in Tampa on WFLA. But now uh, I was asked by a community radio station here in Tampa mm-hmm. to host a one-hour talk show and it's going to be on Tuesday from noon to 1 o'clock every Tuesday uh, afternoon on WMNF, which is 88.5 here in the Tampa Bay area. Awesome, awesome. That's great. So there you go, guys. If you want to listen to to Mark – um, you can you can you can listen to him then. And Mark, before I let you go, can you do me a really small favor? Sure. Would you would you be able to say on the air here? Would you be able to say this is Mark Bayro? And and if you want, you could say announcer of BattleBots or her, however you wish to, uh, you know, title yourself. And then after that, you could say and you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift. Sure. Would you be able to do that? You want me to do uh, it right now? Yeah, please do. Please do. go for it. Hi, this is a voice of BattleBots, Mark Biro, saying you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift. That was fancy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is what we call a one-take wonder right there. That's what you need to do. If you guys want to have the chops, that's what you need to do. Do it one take. <laughs> Mark, I can't tell you how grateful I am 
for the uh, for the call, and I, I know how busy you are. And um, once again, if anyone wants to listen to you, they, it's WMNF 88.5 FM. Now, do they have a website that anybody can access just in case? Or Yes, they can go to WMNF.org, and the broadcast is streamed uh, over your computer. Awesome. And it's Tuesday nights from noon to one, is that correct? Yes, or- Tuesday afternoon. Okay, wonderful. So thanks again, Mark, and we'll be we'll be hearing you know we'll be looking forward to hearing from you, and we really we're really hoping you get it, buddy. Thank you. No, thank you, Mark. Take care, my friend. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Exclusive announcement from the announcer of BattleBots himself, Mark Biro, that BattleBots will return, and he is hopefully he'll get it. I'm really hoping he will. Um. I can't think of a better person. I mean, for me, honestly, I'm, and, and you know, you heard me saying this, but it really would not be the same show without him there. And I know you guys agree with me. I'm going to go uh, on a break real quick, ladies and gentlemen. When I get back, um, I, if, if I have time, I'll do a few, a little bit of news, but I'm, I may or may not have time for that. But then, I'm, of course, I'm going to air the interview between myself and Robert Salas, author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. So just hang in there, ladies and gentlemen, and um, we'll be right back. This is the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show, and we are just punching in. Stay stay with us. Put your warm feet on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um... Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show on the Graveyard Shift. www.blogtalkradio.com slash the Graveyard Shift. And on Twitter at hashtag Emmy Shift Show. If you want to call in and discuss any of the news, or if you have a news announcement that you need to make, please call Emmy at area code 347-237-5187. Not all callers will make it online. We'll be right back.
radio.com slash the graveyard shift or on twitter hashtag emmy shift show we want to thank the illustrious mark bayro for giving us the time his valuable time to talk to us about the return of the BattleBots tv show we will be very excitedly uh watching out for that so and as as you heard you know if we we hear anything else we'll let you guys know and it'll be here on this show that you'll hear about it first ladies and gentlemen you're right here so, without any further ado, before I get to our interview between myself and Mr. Robert Salas, I've got some pretty big deal news to talk to you about. Um, first of all, I would like to make an official announcement that the Grand Brony Gala is now the official convention of the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. I made it official a couple days ago. If you all were uh, paying attention to our Facebook and our Twitter feed, I'm sure you heard about it. Um, I was asked why I did this by some of our fans, and I don't know how to answer that question, really, to be honest with you. I was a little bit surprised and kind of bummed out that some of you asked me that, to be quite honest with you. Um, I hope that the reason you asked me was a happy reason, because... Really, this convention is a great cause, and it, it helps. It's, it's for charity. I don't know if many of you knew that or not, but it's um, for the Children's Hospital. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm just waiting for the, uh, the link here. To, uh, here we go. It it's benefits the All Children's Hospital and the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. I mean, I can't think of a better reason, two reasons right there, than than that and not only that but it's a really fun event and the people that that put this on especially Arlene um she's a great great lady wonderful to talk to wonderful person uh, a good friend I consider her a friend so you know um I, I I'm very very proud of the fact that there are convention I will man if I if I if I could I would walk around with a sign saying that to the world there you go with a horse on my head and everything <laughs> watch watch somebody from the bronies will make me a horse head watch to watch that happen and i would wear it doggone it i would wear it i would prefer discord because you know he's my he's my boy man discord but anyway so i know that they're having an event other than the gala which is coming july 10th to 12th 
2015 at the Embassy Suites at USF campus here in Tampa. Before that, the the Bronies are having uh, the Hearts and Hooves 5K Fun Run Walk, and that will be um, on. Well, the check-in uh, and the and when you receive your T-shirts will be February 14th from thir- from 3 to 5 p.m. and February 15th from 7 to 8 a.m. But the run and the walk will start at 8.15 a.m. on February 15th. You check in at the Embassy Suites USF Bush Gardens. Um, you can see the, um, the, uh, the directions on their website, which is grandbronygala.com. And, in fact, I'm going to tweet this uh, page so that you all can, um, can see it yourself. And you can, those of you that want to know more about it, and uh, you know, please do participate if you can. Um, I want to be there. We are going to try to be there, but we cannot guarantee that we will be there. Um, as, as you all know, that I'm also a daddy of three children, and it's and I know I'm not saying that's an excuse, but you know I am also injured, I'm also disabled, and I can't always promise to be in places all the time. So I will try to be there if I can. Um, but anyway, it's called the Hearts and Hooves 5K Fun Run slash Walk, and it will be this coming weekend, the February 15th at 8:15 a.m. is when it starts. But you know that you check in either February 14th from 3 to 5 p.m or February 15th from 7 to 8 a.m. And I just tweeted the, um, the, you know, the link for more information. And I, also, I will also mention the sponsors for the Fun Run Walk is Shell's Great Casual Seafood, Smoothie King, The Yogurt Spot, Shapes Total Fitness for Women, Graffiti Junction, American Burger Bar, and you can learn more about that on the website. So many, many thanks to our friends at the bronies at grand brony gala please do come if you can so there you have it well i was not planning on that kind on that much time earlier today but this is what happens when you have a a popular talk show you never know what's going to happen and by the way that um instrumental music you heard before uh rather after during the break rather was uh embodied by uh, Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher of East Coast Raid fame. So we want to thank them so much for giving us, um, letting us, you know, play that. It was it was pretty cool. I loved it. And we look forward to more music from them. Well, actually, that the first one was Embodied. The second one, as I'm sure you you know by now, is Cookie Monster by Holden Strianez and Throne of Anguish. And, of course, we always thank our official show composer and musician, Dan Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame. And And, by the way, this is me tapping Dan Edenfield, calling Dan Edenfield. Where is more new music? New music, Dan Edenfield. Hello. There. I think I woke him up, hopefully. He knows I'm messing with him. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm running out of time here, so without any further ado, here is my interview between myself and Mr. Robert Salas. Uh, Hopefully we'll have time when we get back, but we may or may not. So here we go. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. I am on the air with the illustrious Robert Salas, and he is the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon, available on at any, really any major bookstore and online at Amazon.com. Before we get into uh, interviewing Robert, I uh, just wanted to tell you a little bit about him. He's a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, class of 1964. Served seven years on active duty before separating from the Air Force in 71. While on active duty, he worked as a weapons controller and also as a launch officer 
Air Force Missile Propulsion Engineer on the Titan III program. And from 71 to 73, he worked as a safety and reliability engineer for Martin Marietta Aerospace and Rockwell International on space shuttle design proposals. And from 74 until his retirement in 95, worked for the FAA, that's Federal Aviation Administration, as an aircraft structure certification engineer. He's also worked as a math teacher. And in 2005, 2005 rather, he published the book Faded Giant with co-author James Klotz, which details a UFO incident that happened to him while stationed at Malmstrom and Air Force Base Montana in 1967. How you doing tonight, Robert? How 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 are how are the things treating you? How are, how are how's the Earth treating you? <laughs> <laughs> Everything's good. I mean, uh, I'm here in. Uh... Sunny Southern California, enjoying the sun. Of course, you're you're in the sun too, aren't you? Yeah, I was just going to say. I think both of us are are actually sitting pretty nicely, uh, in in contrast with our other neighbors in the north, in the chilly north. So, um, yeah. may, may, maybe to to make 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 sure that they don't get too mad at us, we shouldn't like get into too much detail on how amazingly awesome it is not to be having to deal with snow right now. Yeah, we we should avoid that. We should right, like we shouldn't we we shouldn't say how amazing it is that we don't have to shovel snow or no. Okay, I'm going to stop anyway. <laughs> so, Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How what what got you into, you know, especially being um, into the armed forces. Well, first of all, how did you get into the armed forces? Is this something that you decided to do, or were you drafted into it, or how how did that happen? Well, it was it was my own choice uh, out of high school. I, I wanted to be in the Air Force, uh, and so I, I just kind of focused on that and uh, um, uh, went to the Air Force Academy after uh, uh, applying to my congressman, like a lot of people do, and uh, and made it. So spent four years there, and then then uh, seven years active duty. Well, that's wonderful, and then and then I mean, it looks like you've done quite a bit when you were there, and um, so you you definitely have experience with um, technology, and and especially Air Force technology makes you very, um, uh, you know, apt yeah. uh, subject and witness for this kind of subject matter. So why why did you decide to write this book exactly, being that you were from a military background? Well, the first book I wrote. Uh, was Faded Giant, uh, and that book was about my incident that happened at Malmstrom Air Force Base in '67, like you mentioned. Uh, I can briefly go through the details of that. Uh, I was a missile launch officer. We had Minuteman One uh, nuclear missiles. I was in control of ten nuclear missiles, and uh, on this date, uh, March 24th, '67. Uh, I got a call from our topside guard. There were just two of us uh, underground capsule. We had control of these 10 missiles. Um, we had all the controls down there, by the way. They didn't have any way of controlling or perpetrating uh, some kind of a hoax. But I get a call saying they're seeing strange lights in the sky. And then um, I didn't pay much attention to that, ex- except he did describe uh, these lights flying very fast and Stopping on a dime and reversing course, and and they weren't airplanes, but they were under uh, powered flight. You know, they were under yeah. control, and um, so uh, it was a little alarming. But I, I didn't pay much attention to it. Then the, the next call came about five minutes later. Uh, he's screaming into the phone. This time he's very frightened, 
and he says there's a UFO sitting right outside the front gate. It's uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, to him it, it's a big reddish uh, glowing object that's pulsating, um, and uh, they had, had all the guards out there with their weapons drawn and. Uh, mm. Wait, the guards had their weapons. So wait a minute. So the person calling you was somebody that was a guard stationed at the base, or was it somebody uh, in the air traffic? This is not a base. This uh, this was a location uh, out in the middle of uh, this, uh, Montana, uh, middle of a wheat field, uh, and it looked like just a little farmhouse with uh, with a fence around it. But uh, what it really was was a a launch control center. Oh my gosh! Uh, we had uh, control of ten nuclear missiles. These missiles were located underground silos. Uh, I was underground, and uh, this object had uh, had flown uh, uh, right above the site, and hovered uh, right out uh, above the front gate, <laughs> and uh, and so we had to protect these missiles. It was nuclear weapons, uh, and. Uh, so the guards said uh, we had about six guards, and the guards were there to protect the sites and inspect the sites in case we had uh, alarms. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the uh, I think I told the guard make sure nothing comes inside the front gate. Uh, guard was very frightened, like I said, mm. and uh, so he hung up the phone. I went to tell my commander about this. And uh, as I started to talk to him, our missiles started shutting down. We lost all ten nuclear missiles while this object was overhead. You mean you lost you lost the power? You you, you lost the uh, ability to be able to control them? The ability to launch them. Oh my God! Yeah, they were unlaunchable, and so um, uh, we lost all ten to uh, what's called a guidance and control system failure. Oh my God! The um, missiles could not be, um, you know, they had internal guidance systems, so they, if they had launched, they wouldn't know where to go. Huh. So uh, uh, they shut down automatically, but they shut down because this object was up there. Uh, the object did something to shut those missiles down because we these missiles are very reliable. Um, in the three years I was on duty at Malmstrom, I never had more than you know one missile go down for any reason uh they were highly reliable um we also got uh, security lights meaning uh we had a possible incursion at the sites where the missiles were located um so we had to send guards out there and again they saw these ufos overhead same kind i mean same, same description type of thing yeah um reddish orange lights above the site. Um, uh, we we uh, reported to the command post. The command post uh, uh, told my commander that the same thing had happened a week earlier. Huh. About a week earlier. It, so my commander turned around and told me the uh, same thing happened another flight. At the yeah. time, I thought it was that, that same night. But later after I, I researched this, it was uh, about eight days earlier, and that was the Echo Flight incident. That happened on March 16, 1967, uh, and again, 10 missiles shut down while UFOs were overhead. They were seen by uh, security guards and, uh, 
and by the maintenance people that were out there working on that those missiles. Wow, that's scary. Did, were you ever briefed on on? I mean, I'm assuming an investigation was was made because they they said that that it happened before. Uh, they were it? the investigation was ongoing at that time. Actually, um, no, we were not briefed on it. Uh, next, <laughs> uh, next, you would think uh, that you know. <laughs> no, this was a major cover-up that happened. Uh, wait, 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 wait! You're saying this? There was a cover-up going on absolutely. about these. Why? Why would you think? I mean, why would you think that? Uh, I'm just not, curious. Not a matter of thinking it; it's a matter. I've uh, I've uncovered evidence of the cover-up, and that's part of what my new book is about. Um, identified. Uh, right. The, right. The, yeah. Is uh, is how this cover-up was uh, carried out, but uh, the uh, the next day I was. Told to re- we were told to report to the squadron commander's office, and uh, they had us sign documents never to talk about this. Of course, that's 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 very uh, common in these kind of situations. And uh, and so from we couldn't even talk to uh, Air Force personnel about it. So wow, uh, at that point, um, well, we couldn't talk to anybody. We never got debriefed. In other words, we never got told what. Uh, what could have happened or what may have happened, uh, or what kind of investigation was going on. We never were told about the ECHO investigation. Hmm. And I never uh, spoke about this to anybody uh, uh, until 1994. So by then I was out of the Air Force. Uh, I had resigned in 1971, and I'd been out of the Air Force you know, for some 23 years. Um, the only reason I, I have been talking about it is because in 1994 I picked up a book called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good, and in that book uh, there's a little paragraph um, on page 301 of that book that says that missiles were shut down by UFOs in 1967 at Malcolm Air Force Base. That's about all it said. Um, I've got Real excited because I thought the Air Force might have declassified the incident. So I I, uh, I was taking a chance, of course, but I, I went to um, MUFON and contacted this man, James Klotz, who's the co-author of my, my first book, right. uh, Faded Giant. And I asked Jim to uh, send a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request to the Air Force, uh, asking about this shutdown incident in 67. Now, the um, I said, don't say anything about UFOs. It might spook them. So. Right. Uh, just ask about the incident, see if we can get some information from the Air Force. Well, the Air Force wrote back and said the incident had been classified, but since we requested information and documents, they were going to declassify the Echo Flight shutdown. Huh. This was the Echo Flight shutdown. Right. Now, that's uh, the one that happened in March 16th, correct? Right. But I thought it was mine because it, um, you know, when I first requested this, I thought this was my incident because, you know, by that time I had forgotten the exact dates. I'd forgotten even right. the name of my commander. Um, and I'd lost track of just about all those people. Um but uh, they declassified the Echo Flight incident. They said they were going to send me back documents. So 
they did. They started sending some documents about the incident. And uh, at that time, I decided, uh, you know, since the Air Force classified this and I thought it was my incident, uh, I'm going to go start talking about it. So I did. I started going public with this, and I've been speaking about it ever since. Wow. that's a, That blows my mind. I mean, well, you know, when it comes to subjects like this, um, my, my audience already knows this about me, but I mean, and you and I just, you know, literally just met. So I'll, I'll kind of clue you in. I, I, I'm, a, I used to be really like open to it. Like, and, and I still am to a certain extent, although I try to be as realistic as possible because, you know, anything can be explained within a certain margin of error. And however, when it has to do with, military installations and especially people who were in the military, that's when kind of that margin of error becomes thinner and thinner to the point where it doesn't even exist. So I guess my question to you would be if you would have to even make a educated hypothetical guess or even just not even a guess, just an explanation of like, how would you, do you think there's any kind of reasonable explanation for what happened other than you know oh it's an alien flying saucer like would you if somebody were to ask you that would you would you have come up with something and if so what would it be no i wouldn't have i you know i've been i had thought about this of course over the years since uh since we were told never to talk about it you know because i wanted to find out what was going on i even asked my my squadron commander when i walked in his office i said what the heck's going on here and and he couldn't explain. It. He said he didn't. Uh, couldn't explain it. Uh, he was white as a sheet. Um, there have been many, many suggestions as to possible explanations: uh, earthquakes, uh, northern lights, um, uh, uh, spurious signals, uh, cosmic rays, uh, <laughs> even swamp gas, even. Yeah, we, <laughs> Even nuclear testing, uh, because uh, during nuclear tests, uh, what's called EMI, electromagnetic pulse, or electromagnetic interference does get released. Uh, But uh, we checked all those things out. There were no earthquakes there. You know, it's not really much of an earthquake area, but there were no no reported earthquakes in that area. We checked with... uh, Department of Energy on nuclear testing. There was no nuclear testing in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, from Even from Nevada, of course, uh, all the testing was done in Nevada in, the, in those days. What about what uh, about the uh, the halo effect? Was that was that what looked into? What halo effect? The the halo effect is um it's a it refers to a an effect that happens when you're around a nuclear uh, actually a radioactive area. And then what ends up happening is if any radiation um, seeps into the atmosphere, it creates a halo-like – and this doesn't always happen at every single time. But it, it, it can – has the potential of creating a halo-type shape in the upper atmosphere that looks almost elliptical. But it's all it is is just a um, an atmosphere. Oh, you're talking about for the objects themselves. Well, Right, yes, uh, yes. The objects themselves – you might be able to explain with uh, ball lightning or uh, something that was like gonna be that. My next question, uh, yeah. Green, yeah, those things have been observed, but uh, uh, no, these things were under control. They, you know, mm. they they hovered directly overhead. Uh, 
and, and again, they were seen earlier, and, and, and there have been there were many reports in the, in the days preceding this of, of lights in the sky. So, okay. uh, no, there is no other explanation. These were craft intelligently controlled. In, in fact, um, there's um, I have another witness which I talk about um, in my first book. Um, that describes how how very uh, intricately these things knew how our systems operated. So uh, wow, that's scary. This I was simply have... an extraterrestrial craft. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. I, I I do have one one more possible, not for not for what happened to you necessarily, but I've thought about this recently. And there's been a lot of authors that I've spoken with that have this several, this same subject about UFOs and how some of them, like my good friend Nick Redfern, talks about how a lot of um, our current technology was like reverse engineered, maybe from extraterrestrial aircraft or just even just military experimental aircraft that just became public. And it made me re- it made me think a little bit about drones, about how. You know, think about it for a second. If you go back in time, and if somebody from, oh, I don't know, the 40s or the 50s, maybe even the 60s, were to look up in the sky and see something like these these drones that we're seeing now, that even that, that everybody knows about now, that we we send off to kill terrorists and stuff. And I just thought, well, maybe some some of these incidents that are happening in the past, and again, I'm not saying it's yours, Maybe some of these incidents are some kind of, or were rather, some kind of experimental drone program that maybe they were. But, and the reason I'm saying I don't think it was yours is because of the fact that your missile, your missiles were being affected. And for them to be able to do that requires a technology that, you know, quite honestly, far surpassed anything we even were remotely considering at that at that moment at that point in time in our country's history uh, absolutely the, what this uh, what would have to have happened you see these missiles were not interconnected in the sense that if one failed uh, the others would fail they they were separate systems right. we had cables uh, underground buried cables that were going to each missile separately and what happened was uh, uh the uh, uh, the object would have had to send a signal through 60 feet of earth and concrete and then penetrate the shielded system uh, of the cables, which was triply shielded, and then send a specific signal to the uh, logic, what we call the logic coupler uh, that, that was connected to the guidance system. Uh, and even the Air Force, in one of the documents I have, uh, and it's in the, my first book, uh, stated that the uh, for this to happen is highly, highly. Um, uh, I'm sorry, the word they used uh, is improbable. Well, I was just going to say, I bet you, yeah. Uh, so, um, no, uh, <laughs> this was something that none of uh, we didn't have the technology. To do this, right. even if we had had the the craft that could have done what this craft did, uh, they didn't have the technology to to do that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that it would be 
not even I can't even think about it. No. Now, in fact, I flew drones in 1965. Oh, really? These were, yeah, these were radio-controlled target drones, and this is all <laughs> the Air Force had in its inventory at the time. Uh, had a feeling. Uh, I had a feeling they were had something like that. We, yeah, we these were just target drones. We would fly these. Um, you know, just like flying a radio radio control aircraft, um, uh, we'd fly this over the Gulf, uh, and uh, and fighters would come in and take shots at it for practice. Those were the only drones we had active in the Air Force at the time. Interesting. I bet I bet those if if any civilians saw those at that time that didn't know about it, I bet they probably thought, "Oh my God!" Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh God, can you imagine? Yeah. Honey, pass me the sunscreen. Oh my God. Um, now I I am a little bit curious. I know that there there were cover-ups of many many incidents including the whole Roswell thing. Now why why would you think there would be a cover cover-up of these incidents? Why why would you think the military or the government would would do that? Okay, and uh well the Air Force has been covering this up since since 1947 since the Roswell incident, but in right. in this case uh, in 1966 the Air Force uh, issued a contract to the University of Colorado uh, to study the UFO question. Now, the UFO question had been um, uh, hot button, hot uh, for some time, um, especially after the 1952 flap over Washington, D.C. Um, but in '66, they they gave a contract to the University of Colorado. Uh, Edward Condon was the head of the, that group that was given this contract, uh, and he was very much a skeptic, and so was his deputy, uh, uh, Bob Lowe. But anyway, uh, so in in March of 67, the uh, investigations of UFOs was ongoing, which included um, looking at Air Force bases, and they had... Um, they had representatives at, at some of the bases, I think about uh, a dozen of them. They had uh, UFO officers that were supposed to uh, uh, work with them on, on this study. Uh, they also worked with um, um, other people that were, you know, uh, worked with MUFON. Not, not MUFON, I'm sorry. MUFON wasn't uh, in business at that. Oh, yeah, they, I'm sorry. Uh, this was... Um, uh, APRO, um, uh, Aerial Phenomenon Organization. It, it's like our MUFON. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were working with a lot of people, um, and they were they were doing a study that was contracted for them by the Air Force. But this was really a whitewash. The Air Force wanted to get out of reporting and investigating UFO incidents. Um, so when our incidents occurred. Uh, this was hushed hush from this committee, this Condon Investigation Committee. It was uh, kept secret from them. The only way they found out about it was through uh, Ray Fowler, who was. Uh, have you heard of Ray Fowler? Yes, I have. Yes, yes I, I have. Ray Fowler uh, happened to work for Sylvania, which had the uh, some electrical contracts with the Air Force on the Minuteman. Right. And Ray Fowler was uh, a part of this this team, this early warning team they called it, uh, where he and when he found out about the uh, missile shutdown incidents, 
he contacted the con investigator and gave him a lot of details. Matter of fact, they met, um, and he gave him names of individuals that saw these objects and um, and told them that, that, that they indeed caused the shutdowns of the of the systems. Uh, he had people working, uh, civilians working at Maelstrom, that uh, fed him this information. Um, so when the investigator found out, he he, he came out to Maelstrom in October of '67. Um, and asked about the uh, investigation of, of these incidents. He was told, uh, he, first of all, the guy he talked to was shocked that he knew about it because this was highly classified. And that's what he was told. They, they told this investigator that this, these incidents were highly classified, that there was an ongoing investigation, but he would not have access to that report unless he had clearance. Uh, for this classified investigation. In fact, there was only one individual on the con investigators that had clearance to review classified documents, and that was this Robert Lowe, who was the deputy of the Condon. And Lowe had already written uh, a, a letter um, stating that he was very skeptical about this and that their objective as a committee would be to try and basically debunk this whole thing about you. Right. Yeah, there was a bit of controversy over his memo, in fact, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, at any rate, uh, the investigator, his name was Dr. Roy Craig, um, right. simply turned around and walked away. Did not, <laughs> did not investigate, did not talk to any of the principals involved. And... Um, and so basically, it never these incidents never got into the Condon report. They never looked at them. If they had, there were uh, many, many witnesses, including myself and others, um, uh, the Echo Flight crew, uh, maintenance people, uh, even civilians who, who saw these objects over the UFO over the missile sites. Uh, and so basically, that that was. A, a major part of this cover-up. And I've got those details and more. Um, uh, If people want to look into this a little bit more on the the details, they can go to my website at spiralgalaxy.org. Is that that spiral like S-P-I or? S-P-I-R-A-L galaxy.org. Okay. And uh, if you go to the, um, uh, follow the links to my evidence page, you will see um, the documentation I've, I've got in support of, of this case. And, and there's also a, a, a report I wrote called Back to Montana. Uh, you'll find it on that site that talks about this cover-up business I just talked about, but in a lot more detail, even has documents in there. I've got this very well supported. That's one. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's not something you normally uh, hear. Um, I mean, normally you hear, you know, mo- a lot of hearsay and conjecture. And now, what I think is interesting is the committee that was associated with this kind of investigation. Uh, shortly after they presented whatever report they had, the Project Blue Book was closed. That's right. Which I think is very interesting and timely. Or well, I wouldn't say timely, but well, that- ironically timely. Yeah, I think, and that and that was the objective all along. The objective of the Air Force in yeah, in collusion with and 
I've got more evidence that, that Condon himself um, was, um, let's say, bought off by the Air Force um, to write a negative report. But they, they wanted that. They wanted that kind of report uh, stating that uh, there were, you know, there wasn't any national security concern over the UFO question, and therefore the Air Force um, actually made that statement. Uh, and since there is no national security concern that they were going to shut down Blue Book, they would no longer report on UFOs um, or keep records, which which was false because they. There were many other. There have been many other incidents since '69, uh, which the Air Force has investigated. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you mean like similar, also similar to the one you had? Absolutely. Or? There, there's, uh, there's many, uh, and, I, and I go over that in my in my book. There's uh, awesome. one in Ellsworth Air Force Base '76. I've heard of the Ellsworth, yeah, the Ellsworth incident, right? Malmstrom again in '75. Uh, That's interesting again. That's interesting. Many, many others. Uh, the um, the Reynolds from Forest incident in 1980. Um, Air Force and uh, other intelligence agencies uh, did a job over there on uh, a lot of the witnesses. Um, so yeah, the uh, but all this has been done in, in secret. Wow. I mean, and talking about secret, you know, what I don't understand is that you have a governments all over the world, not all of them, obviously, but there are many other governments that have been very, very open and very public about their UFO files and even their experiences and, and people that, you know, can just go and find out about them. And here we are, you know, doing all these cover ups and, you know, hush hush kind of thing. You know, no, there's no there's no aliens. There's no, you know, extraterrestrial kind of thing. I why do you think that why do you think we haven't gone public with this? Why do you think the government hasn't actually come out and said, "Okay, look, this really happened?" Well, uh again, uh what happened in uh 47 is at first the uh the Air Force declared that they had recovered uh saucer-like craft. And then the next day they reneged on that claim and said, no, it was not. <laughs> right, I remember that. Uh, we, yeah, we didn't do that. But, uh, again, the uh, the cover-up started, I think, because uh, at the time, this was just after World War II, and they didn't want to frighten the public uh, about another potential enemy, uh, potential you know, invasion. Um, you mean like the Battle of Los Angeles, like the <laughs> supposedly? Angeles. Well, uh, yeah. People still had remembered at that time uh, oh, yeah. the um, War of the Worlds broadcast by H.G. Wells, oh, which had the 1938, yeah. uh, which scared a lot of people. But anyway, as time went on and this cover-up continued, which it did, um, and there was a secret group formed, and I go into that, and that secret group turned into a, a more uh, sophisticated secret group, which I call the UFO Cabal. Uh, which controls uh, information, collects information, collects artifacts, uh, does analysis, um, and has a whole organization um, on the UFO subject. Um, uh, and again, I go into a lot of detail on uh, on the existence of the cabal. So that mm. 
it's it's uh, it's gotten to the point where this is more about the power of secrets, uh, the ability to have these uh, highly significant secrets information uh, about how these craft operate, about the occupants um, uh, and things like that. That uh, it could be, uh, let's say, some of these secrets may, uh, and I believe they have been turned into um, uh, industrial products or applications, uh, especially military applications, huh. uh, fly-by-wire, for example. Um, uh, so I think the reason for uh, the secrecy now is more the fact that um, it's power and greed more than anything. Huh. Wow. I, I agree. I agree with that on, on, on that level. Now, and let me ask you this. Um, I mean, I did not know about this international cavil, so that's kind of – I'm still kind of react. I'm still kind of uh, reeling from that. You know, getting back to the – although although it doesn't surprise me, it just kind of just like, wow, you know, this really gives you an idea of how well, grand in scope this thing is. Yeah. But um, I go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I go into detail on that in my book. So well, I, I'm, I'm, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I don't know how many more reasons you have to have to read this. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is amazing. What, what about you know getting one of the things that we really haven't been talking about that much, um, is the the actual occupants inside the crafts, the actual extraterrestrials themselves. I mean, you know, I've, I've asked this question to several authors and several. You know, everybody has their own kind of take on this. But what? Why do you think? If let's say they are, let's say they're they are aliens coming to visit us. Why? Why would they come out of all the billion? You know, to quote Carl Sagan, billions and billions of planets out there. Why come to our little you know rock? Well, um, there. Yeah, this is again speculation. Um, right, right, of course. One of the reasons may be when we started the nuclear age. In other words, we exploded nuclear weapons. We did atmospheric testing for a while after the, the first bomb drops over. Right. Oh God, some of that was was really some of that stuff we really should not have done. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know. We've got a lot of life forms on this planet. We, we're just teeming with life on this planet. Uh, who knows, but they may have helped us uh, evolve in some way. They, um, you know, we, we just don't know how, how, uh, how much life there is out there, even in our own solar system. You know, there are many places in our own solar system that are conducive to life, that have water, uh, and, and that where life could have evolved. That's yeah. true. They they just, in fact, they just recently uh, discovered, or at the very least, maybe they discovered it before and they just are now making it public, there's a dwarf planet called Ceres that they're saying does possibly have water. Right. In in the in in the, on the planet, so there's yeah, there's absolutely right. in our very own galaxy. So you know, again, some of the answers to your question may be coming uh, also from uh, people who've been taken abduct, abducted by extraterrestrial life forms. Um, and uh, let's go back to the Betty and Barney Hill case in 1961. Have you heard of that? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, I have. I've, I have heard about this. This is amazing. Yeah. Don't please continue. I'm, it's just amazing how 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 many similarities there are. Just go, please continue. Yeah. Anyway, they were taken. Uh, this is New Hampshire area. I think they were driving and then and finally uh, taken aboard a, a craft. And they, and Betty was shown um, a map by the extraterrestrials uh, of. Their travels, in other words, and uh, star systems uh, within our galaxy. And uh, if if you go into uh, Kathleen Marden has written an excellent book along with Stanton Friedman on the Betty and Barney Hill case. I think it's called Captured. Right. But in there, um, uh, they talk about the analysis of this map and the that Betty had recalled the the location of the of the stars and. Uh, and that has been analyzed to, to show a particular uh, star system in, in actuality. So um, that is, to me, that's that's good evidence. So that's some evidence that um, um, they are here from other star systems now, and that they are making a kind of a, a regular run, if you will, of, of certain areas. Uh, yeah, our our planet is of interest. Uh, to not only one, but probably many ET life forms uh, or, um, you know, types, if you will, um, and for different reasons. But um, uh, life, I'm sure, is one of them. And also the fact that we have nuclear weapons and are, and they are affected uh, by our nuclear weapons uh, hmm. in some way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, who knows? Maybe the radiation or some kind of effect from the nuclear weapons was one of the reasons why that craft was brought down in near Roswell. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't know about it, or maybe they did know about it, and they just didn't know how it was going to affect them. Well, the uh, Roswell, of course, was the only nuclear bomb base that we had in the country at the time. I did not know that. Yeah. That's interesting. 509th Bomber Group. Uh, it was the group that dropped the first atomic bombs uh, on Japan. And they had nuclear wow. weapons on the base. It was the only base, uh, like I said, operational uh, in the country. And by the way, UFOs have been seen over many, many nuclear facilities. And again, I go in this in, uh, into this in my book uh, as early as... Um, um, 1943, uh, over Hanford nuclear site in Washington. Uh, Hanford was the site of the production of the first plutonium uh, that was used in the first nuclear bomb uh, attack on Hiroshima. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I tell you what, I, I'm. I mean, we could talk about this all night, and and unfortunately, that would mean your entire book would be, and then and then people would be like, well, why am I going to buy it? But I think I think we should stop here for now, because um, I really want everyone to see how much more, and there really are. This is we're just scratching the surface here, late game. Yes, we are. I mean, I really, um, you know, there's, you can pretty much throw a rock in a. I mean, don't do this, please, ladies and gentlemen, but. You can basically throw a rock and hit like a hundred, a million, thousand. I'm exaggerating, obviously, but books about UFOs. But there's not that many that can be said to be written by someone who actually knows what they're talking about. And this is one of them that, you know, I can tell from talking to Robert, from learning about him, 
and even from reading the book, that this guy really knows what he's talking about. So, um, you know, there's people that say, oh, yeah, I saw such and such. You know, and that's fine. Maybe they did. But, you know, there's a there's a realistic aura to this. And um, I think that comes across in your book. I think it comes across when speaking to you. So I really highly recommend this. So, again, um, the book is called Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. And it's written by Robert Salas. That's S-A-L-A-S. Once again, Robert, before we um, end the end of tonight, um, your website, if they want to learn more about you and your other projects, is Spiral. That's S-P-I-R-A-L Galaxy dot O-R-G. That's correct. That's correct. Great. And we'll go. What I'm going to do is I'm also going to go ahead and include that on our Twitter feed, and I'll I'll also talk about it during the uh, episode. But. So, Robert, thank you so much for uh, becoming available tonight. It was an absolute honor and a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, we look forward to more books from you in the future. Are you, are you working on any uh, future books coming well, out? I've, had, I've got some ideas, but I haven't got anything done in writing yet. But maybe, could be. Okay, great. Well, if you do, please give us a, a holler, and we'll have you back on, uh, hopefully, in the near future. Thank you, Emmy. I really enjoyed it. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That was my interview with Mr. Robert Salas, author of Unidentified UFO Phenomenon. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, as you can see, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview myself. So um, that's all for tonight, guys. I don't really have any time left to do any other articles. I was going to you know, talk about Brian Williams leaving and you know, uh, his job, which was – you know, it's only temporary, though. So um, anyway, we'll um, – you know, unfortunately, I may I'll, I'll try to tweet those stories out in our Twitter feed and hashtag Emmy Shift Show so you can learn more about it. But I also want to take the time to thank Mark Barrow again for the time that he gave to come on the show tonight. Um, next week, we'll be airing our interview with Linda Godfrey, author of American Monsters. And um, so be stay tuned for that, ladies and gentlemen. And we want to thank you once again for listening to the Graveyard Shift. This is Emmy. And I am punching out, and I'm going to punch out on Cookie Monster from Holden Strianez and Throne of Anguish. Jesse Diaz, founder of Dark Matter Coffee. I've always driven Hondas growing up. The Honda Civic is really awesome to drive. The interior is amazing, the taillights are gorgeous, and it's incredibly slick. I think if you want something in life, just go for it. Greatness is within reach. Now you could get a great deal on the Honda Civic. KBB.com's overall best buy for 2017. For more information, visit Kelly Blue Book's KBB.com. Kelly Blue Book is a registered trademark of Kelly Blue Book Company, Incorporated. I'm Jesse Diaz, founder of Dark Matter Coffee. I've always driven Hondas growing up. 
The Honda Civic is really awesome to drive. The interior is amazing, the taillights are gorgeous, and it's incredibly slick. I think if you want something in life, just go for it. Greatness is within reach. Now you could get a great deal on the Honda Civic. KBB.com's overall best buy for 2017. For more information, visit Kelly Blue Book's KBB.com. Kelly Blue Book is a registered trademark of Kelly Blue Book Company, Incorporated.